It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, firstly, a bit of a word of apology for last week. If you were listening, we sort of got cut uh, in the um, middle of a, a, you know, of a thought. Um, we do have a time limit, so uh, we have to keep to that. And uh, last week, there were three questions presented uh, to which um, uh, I didn't have a chance to give answers. And so um, I think maybe what we'll do is start with those questions and answers and then, um, you know, move on to a different topic of uh, current interest. So here are the questions. Question number one was, why is Canada funding UNRWA? Um, I think uh, the, the reader or, or the listener said that we're giving $90 million to UNRWA. And the question was, why considering who they are and what they're doing? So uh, just a bit of background. The UNRWA, spelled U-N-R-W-A, there's a silent W in there, stands for United Nations Relief Works Agency. But that's just part of it. The last part of it is UNRWA, United Nations Relief Works Agency for Palestine. That's the full uh, title of it. And this United Nations organization, sole mission is to improve the life of Palestinians who are living either in Palestine proper, meaning the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, or in the neighboring countries where there's refugee camps, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. That, th those are the only places that they're mandated to operate. Uh, their budget is millions and millions of dollars a year, and they are supposed to be providing health, education, and welfare services to Palestinian refugees. This agency was set up in 1949, which means one year after uh, the uh, Arab-Israeli war that established Israel as a state, and which led to the uh, refugee status of um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees. Uh, and these refugees went to the places that I just mentioned. Uh, no one at that time knew how long they would be there or what their status would be or anything like that. This was all a very unsettled situation. But there were people in uh, desperate need who left uh, sometimes without uh, even their belongings and ended up in refugee camps. Um, considering, I, I would remind our listeners that considering the very recent past of the um, uh, Second World War and the amount of refugees created as a result of that war, um, the United Nations saw that this would come under their purview to establish aid for these refugees. Um, obviously, this was a political decision. Obviously, the group of Arab and Muslim nations who uh, even at that time in the General Assembly uh, had certain power, uh, vote were strongly in favor to recommend this uh, agency be set up and funded. And so it was. So what's special about this uh, UNRWA agency is a couple of things. One, as I said, is that it, its focus is only on one particular group of people in one place. 
So its aim is not to help refugees all around the world, uh, but only to help Palestinian refugees. Uh, secondly, uh, the definition of what a refugee is was never made clear. So uh, that um, normally we think of refugees as people who are escaping from a war or from ethnic cleansing. Um, but uh, commonly, commonly in, our, in our expectations, and these expectations are, are becoming um, less uh, accurate, that after a certain amount of time, these refugees end up getting settled to um, the places that they're living in or end up moving elsewhere or end up moving back to where they came from. So, uh, you know, the expectation that this United Nations agency would be alive um, 72 years after its creation is something that I'm sure no one thought of at the time. Um, there are uh, a lot of people, in, including the Israeli government, who feel that uh, this uh, agency is carrying out the work of um, anti-Israeli elements, that the agency is politicized, that it's as if the United Nations is taking sides in the Arab-Israeli conflict, that uh, anyone who comes under the purview of this agency um, is kind of conditioned to maintain the refugee status and to um, uh, sort of continue the, the uh, battle to, re to uh, re either recover their uh, houses in Israel or to be able to move back to, to where they once lived, uh, which is now in Israel. So these are the uh, arguments that the Israeli government uh, puts and the Israeli government feels that uh, there should be no need for this um, United Nations agency. Furthermore, Israel feels that um, a refugee, the status of a refugee should not be passed on from one generation to the next. So in other words, original refugees from 1948 are one thing, but now we're talking uh, about their great grandchildren who are still refugees and who are still entitled to get uh, money from the uh, UN agency. In fact, the total number of uh, refugees now under their purview is 5.7 million. So uh, this is a fairly large number, considering that um, in uh, Palestine of 1948, before the, um, uh, the Arab-Israeli war, there were somewhere near 800,000 uh, Palestinians living in uh, Palestine at the time, somewhere around 100,000 never left Israel, so that late that leaves about 700,000 who left, and you know that number has now grown to 5.7 million. The um, the uh, the sort of counter argument is that um, uh, you know the United Nations has to pay heed not only to what say Western powers want but also to uh, what uh, non-Western powers want, and that the Arab Muslim bloc in the UN uh, is fairly considerable today and fairly powerful. And if they want to enlist the United Nations help to aid a certain uh, people, there should be nothing wrong with that. Um, the, um, the United States, the, the refugee, the, the UNRWA itself, 
I was reading some of their material this morning, um, has no sort of political bias in their written uh, materials. They say they're just a humanitarian uh, agency who are there to help people who have no other help. It's important to realize that um, in uh, Lebanon and Syria, which are two of the uh, um, locations of refugee camps, Palestinians were never given citizenship. So although they've been there for 73, 70, you know, 73 years, they have no right to get citizenship of those countries. That means they have no right to get uh, certain types of uh, work, licenses, maybe no right to attend certain uh, faculties and universities. Uh, they definitely are uh, second class, uh, not citizens, but second class residents of Lebanon and Syria. Uh, Jordan was different. Jordan gave citizenship to the Palestinians. And um, of course, Palestinians who are living uh, today in the Gaza and the West Bank are also divided between people who've always lived there in those places and refugees who came over either in 1948 or 1967. Um, of course, these refugees have become blended into the population, um, although uh, they um, uh, sort of started with one, uh, one uh, leg behind. And indeed, uh, especially in Gaza today, because those refugees are aided by UNRWA, they have a better standard of living than the uh, people who've lived in Gaza without refugee status. Now, as far as the argument goes that um, the United Nations is sort of promoting anti-Israeli feeling among these refugees, um, I, I think that um, it's a hard case to prove in that how can you separate uh, whatever they're, they're doing from whatever is going around in the air all around them. So it's not only the refugees in Gaza or not only the refugees in the West Bank uh, or, uh, you know, uh, who are um, anti-Israeli, but it's the whole population itself. So it's very hard to separate. In fact, the United Nations would make the opposite argument that um, they are there to moderate uh, the feelings of the um, citizens that they're serving, that the schools, especially important is this, that the schools that they are uh, promoting or teaching or sponsoring, these schools have a set curriculum which cannot include any kind of um, intimidation or incitement to violence. It can't include any kind of anti-Jewish uh, writings it can't include uh, any sort of uh, um, uh, um, anti-feminist, uh, uh, you know, uh, sentiments. Um, it's kind of, the, the, their literature says they're there to promote a kind of a pluralistic democratic mindset in the students that they're teaching. Whether they get to do that or not, of course, is another story because you can't separate the lives of students in the school from the lives out of the school. Uh, it also has been pointed out that um, in some of those schools, the, the Palestinian UNRWA schools, that there are anti-Israeli um, uh, materials that are being presented. And, uh, you know, in the press release that I read, 
the, they acknowledge this, that this is done by mistake, that um, the material sort of got snuck in when they ran out of regular materials and that as soon as they found out about it, they got rid of them. So whether this is uh, kind of uh, just, um, you know, whitewashing or something, I have no idea, but they know that they shouldn't be doing it. So that's already a, that's already a step. They also point out that their graduates have won numerous awards and have been admitted to all kinds of universities abroad um, and uh, that their, their schools that they promote are the best schools in the Gaza Strip and the, or the best schools in the West Bank. And even in, um, you know, what used to be, I guess Syria is just all a big uh, mess now. So they probably stopped operating during the civil war, but um, their schools are known to uh, produce um, uh, quality graduates because um, you know the the students who have no other option and no way to make to make it in life um, because of discrimination against them uh, in Lebanon or Syria uh, know that uh, if they get a decent education they could always uh, apply to go abroad and, and make a living abroad so uh, basically that's the role of UNRWA um, they do uh, fundraise a lot. So it's not only the governments who give money to the UN and the UN who passes it down uh, where they receive funding from, but they receive funding from uh, directly from foreign governments, especially Middle Eastern governments like Qatar and Kuwait and uh, Saudi Arabia and the wealthier oil states. And also they solicit donations from individuals uh, you know, you just have to look at their website and it says donate here. So um, that's the point, uh, you know, the question of why does Canada fund them um, is, uh, you know, in part because Canada has a, uh, we'll call it a, an internationalist outward looking, uh, um, you know, world affairs opinion. And since Canada does not have a, you know, strong armed forces to uh, to run around the world and be the world's policeman. Uh, and Canada was always a strong believer in the UN that Canada is giving money to uh, this particular organization. It has not been shown that this organization uh, says that Israel should be destroyed and that the Palestinians should go back and take back their houses. If they did that, then Canada wouldn't be involved in it. But um, uh, notwithstanding what the Israeli government thinks, uh, most of the world believes that um, a two-state solution in the uh, Israel and Palestine is the ideal situation. Uh, so in other words, that the Baghaz and the West Bank would become the state of Palestine. And most of the world uh, believes that this is the best option. And so the United Nations is saying UNRWA is saying, well, we're just waiting for that time and we're preparing uh, our graduates to take part in that society once it gets established. So that's that question about um, the unwise Canada uh, funding UNRWA. Um, yeah, their job is also, you know, to give welfare, financial payments, uh, to build houses and camps, um, uh, to pro provide uh, health care, uh, and education. So that's it.
Now, next question was, why is the media blaming Israel for not giving vaccines to Palestinians? So here's another question involving Israel and Palestine. And uh, this is a kind of a, sort of a bit of a more straightforward uh, explanation, but with complications. So um, uh, the Palestinians who live in the West Bank um, are under the control uh, of the state of Israel. Uh, and the Palestinians who live in Gaza are under the indirect control of the state of Israel. Uh, and according to the Geneva Conventions, Article 4, when a, state, when a state occupies another one, they are responsible for the well-being of the citizens that they are occupying. Uh, so on the surface of it, it seems as if Israel is responsible for the well-being of um, these uh, Palestinians, particularly the ones in the West Bank. The ones in Gaza are, I would say, indirectly occupied in the sense that Israel controls uh, almost um, uh, the uh, sort of perimeters of that small statelet, or, or, or yeah, we'll call it territory. Um, and uh, that with the small exception of the Egyptian border, uh, no, there's no airport in Gaza, there's no seaport in Gaza. Uh, the road crossings into Gaza are controlled by Israel. And uh, Israel has a blockade on the, uh, on the sea so that uh, Gaza boats are not allowed to go out more than six miles. Uh, so in a certain, and you know, there's fences all the way around Gaza. So in a certain sense, Israel sort of, sort of, and I say sort of, not completely, uh, controls the Gaza Strip sort of from the outside. Um, but they have no real involvement in the, on, uh, in the affairs or ongoing affairs inside the Gaza Strip. In the West Bank, it's a kind of a mix and match uh, affair where the West Bank is divided into three separate uh, sort of territories. Um, and Israel ultimately has control over pretty well everything except uh, garbage collection and the street sweeping. Um, however, however, uh, I think that uh, we have to add one other fact to this, to this question, which is simply that Israel has, is leading the world in vaccinations. And the last figure I saw was Israel has already vaccinated 55% of its citizens. It's so far ahead of the whole world in vaccinations that the, you know, the nearest other country is around 14%. So I think the logic simply is that, well, if Israel has already vaccinated so many people, why can't it spare some vaccines for the Palestinians who are living uh, next door to them and for whom they are responsible? Um, the Israeli response is that Israel is not responsible for the health uh, and welfare of the Palestinians because in the 1994 Oslo Accords, which was an agreement signed between the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and Israel, uh, that agreement sort of set out the parameters of how Palestine would be, how the West Bank of Palestine would be uh, administered, and that uh, the Palestinian government, which was going to be elected, was responsible for healthcare. 
So uh, Israel says, well, if they're responsible for healthcare, it has nothing to do with us. Um, and that's been kind of the Israeli argument. So wh which takes precedence, the Geneva Accords or the Accords um, signed by the Palestinians and Israelis? It's kind of uh, to the uh, up in the air. We'll call it uh, un, 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 um, unsettled. It's not something that there's an easy answer to. However, it's also important to know that there are uh, at least 100,000 Palestinians who travel between the West Bank and Israel, and even some between the Gaza Strip and Israel every day. And therefore, it's in Israel's interest to uh, vaccinate these people because otherwise uh, they'll be bringing COVID in from the outside. Now, the rate of COVID in uh, Palestine is pretty low. Certainly is low compared to, um, you know, Western Europe or the U.S., uh, but it is there. And they have had, uh, they have had uh, over a thousand casualties already from COVID in, um, in the West Bank. And um, so what Israel has started to do is to, first of all, provide some vaccine for hospital workers in the, um, in the, in the West Bank. Uh, and uh, last I heard, they were giving them 20,000 doses to, for the Palestinians to administer to anybody they decided to. Uh, I think as the, um, as the amount of um, uh, the percentage of people gets increasingly, increasingly vaccinated in Israel, that they will be more comfortable to uh, give extra doses to the Palestinians to um, administer for themselves. Um, it's also important to realize, and maybe not that uh, you know that well known, is that there's, uh, first of all, um, half a million Jewish settlers who live in the West Bank, many of whom are in contact with Palestinians on a daily basis. So there's a chance for them to be infected that way. And also there are many, many Israelis who go into the West Bank to shop or for services. Um, uh, and um, particularly among the Arab uh, Israeli population. And uh, that way they can go in and get infected also. So in other words, the Palestinians who live in the West Bank and the Israelis are kind of one, sort of living in one, um, one uh, uh, you know, world, and that it, it only makes sense to have those people vaccinated uh, in order not to bring um, COVID into Israel. Of course, on the other hand, one can say, well, you know what, if, if they vaccinate 100% of Israelis, uh, they don't have to give any uh, vaccine to the Palestinians because there's no danger for Israelis to get sick from COVID. So there's that's another way that, uh, you know, an Israeli government can look at things. But in the meantime, uh, interestingly enough on this topic, it's only now, and this is after 55% have been vaccinated, that Israel is seeing a decrease in the number of cases. And the decrease has been uh, shown to be uh, because of the vaccination rate and not because of lockdown or social distancing. So uh, it, it's, it's Israel is almost like the guinea pig of the world in COVID uh, treatment and vaccination. 
And it's finally showed after more than half of the people are vaccinated that there begins to be a reduction in the number of cases um, uh, because of this vaccination. Israel is also checking to see whether people who are vaccinated can pass the, the disease to someone else who isn't vaccinated. Now, you know, this is a very difficult um, thing to measure unless you, uh, you know, unless you purposely um, expose someone who's been vaccinated to COVID uh, and then put them right next to someone who isn't and see what happens. You know, that they haven't, you know, had the sort of um, idea, to, well, they haven't had the permission to do that, but that would be one, one way to test it. But otherwise, they have to look at it in, indirectly with epidemiologists measuring numbers of cases here, number of cases there, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of putting the two things together. But they seem to say that at least for the Pfizer vaccine, that there is, a, there is an indication that people who've been vaccinated can't pass on the disease to someone who isn't vaccinated. But that's preliminary, okay? Um, let me just see if I have any notes on this one here. Uh, no, okay. The next question was, um, the next question was I was a bit more unclear about, but this was uh, that the Biden administration has made appointments to the intelligence, uh, um, uh, to the intelligence uh, un uh, unit of, of the United States, in other words, to the intelligence, we'll call it uh, envelope of the US, uh, including an anti-Israeli Muslim and an anti-Israeli Jew. And I'm not pre, honestly, I'm not sure who these people are. Um, you know, maybe in the questions you can tell me. Um, but um, I would say that um, uh, in general, in terms of, uh, first of all, you cannot label somebody just because of their religion and, and sort of know from that what their political beliefs are gonna be, that's number one. Number two, that the um, policy of the United States is set you know, by the president and by his uh, cabinet. And that if there are people who are working under these people, their job is to carry out the policy and not to change it or, or to, you know, to insert their own beliefs into what the policy is. Um, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the United States appointing Muslims to any job, just like there's nothing wrong with appointing anybody to any job and you can't uh, you know, judge a book by its cover, so to speak. <clears throat> In terms of the appointment of Jewish officials, I mean, the Biden government is like chock full of them from uh, from Janet Yellen, who's in charge of the Federal Reserve, to uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, the state, the head of the State Department, to uh, Alexander Mayorkas, who's the in charge of immigration, uh, you know Chuck Schumer, who's the head of the uh, Senate today. Um, in fact, uh, I was reading in some Jewish press there are so many Jews in the top level of the Biden government that. Um, that, uh, you know, they could have a minion. Um, now, um, um, uh, some people are, are upset, and I'll just continue with this a little bit, is it, that saying, you know, that, the, that you could appoint, a, just because you appoint a Jew 
to um, to in a government uh, position doesn't mean that that, that 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 it doesn't mean that the Jew can't be uh, anti-Israeli, and that's absolutely correct. Um, nor should it be expected that you know every person thinks the same way. Of course, they don't. Um, uh, but uh, what to me is important to distinguish between is to, to call um, uh, someone who um, disagrees with the Israeli government, to call that person anti-Israel is very wrong. And it's very easy to make this mistake and you see it all the time. You see it you know, in print all the time especially in the sort of, we'll call them right-wing uh, publications that so-and-so is anti-Israeli or this Jew is an anti-Israeli or this Jew is a self-hating Jew because he's anti-Israeli. And uh, you have to try to define and ask the person, what do you mean by anti-Israeli? And it turns out that they don't mean that they're against the state of Israel, but they're against the government of Israel or against what the government of Israel does. Um, I'd like to point out, just uh, continuing this on a little bit, maybe we'll get into it next week, I don't know, but there's elections going to be held in Israel in March. Uh, Israel has a vivid democracy. Um, in general, roughly as it comes, uh, half of the people are on the side of the government and half of the people are against the government. And so uh, there are strong critics of Israel, of the Israeli government, and strong critics of Netanyahu inside Israel itself. And um, there are strong critics even of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank inside Israel itself. There's huge, big disagreement on whether uh, Israel rule over the West Bank is considered occupation or not. And this is what Israel is arguing would argue in the United Nations that the Geneva Convention, Article 4, doesn't apply to them because they're not occupying the West Bank in the sense that they didn't take it over from a different country and, and impose their rule there. Um, that um, when the 1967 war occurred, uh, it was a defensive war for Israel that they captured the West Bank um, but uh, since Jordan, uh, the previous owner, had taken over the West Bank itself, um, you know, after the 1948 war, that Jordan was an occupier and that Israel kicked Jordan out and Jordan relinquished its claim on the West Bank and therefore Israel is not taking it over from a different country, so it's not an occupier. So these are sort of, uh, we'll call them, um, you know, uh, other arguments. Uh, it depends kind of in a way what side you're on to see how you see things. But I think it's important to uh, understand that being anti-Israel and being anti the Israeli government are two completely different things. And um, uh, just another point uh, before I go into questions about this. Uh, Thursday, this coming, February 4th, is the final day for the Israeli political parties to present their lists of people who are running for office in the March elections. And at that point, we'll know in a certain sense what the lineup of parties will be because Israel is a multi-party democracy and there's all kinds of coming and going as to who's going to run with whom. So uh, the lineup 
the teams, in other words, we can think of it as, as sports teams, well, you know, their final lineup will be presented on February 4th, and that's when we'll have a better idea of who might get elected and who won't. So I'm going to stop here um, for comments and questions before I go on to uh, my uh, topic of the day. So yeah, we're about halfway finished. So it's, you know, it's a pretty good time for a break. So um, questions, comments? We do have one question here, Hershey. Yeah. Uh, it's from an anonymous attendee. It says, do you think that anti-Zionism... Can you please speak louder, Justin? It's, it's, uh, for some reason, I'm having a bit of difficulty yeah. to hear you. Uh, is this better, Hershey? Yeah, that's better, yeah. Okay. It says, do you think that anti-Zionism is the same as anti-Semitism? No, it's completely different. Anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are, are overlapping for sure, but they aren't the same. Um, anti-Zionism... Uh, refers to the idea that, um, uh, well, let's find out what Zionism means for starters, and then we'll know what anti-Zionism means. So Zionism was a movement founded in the 19th century to um, uh, so-called solve the Jewish problem in Europe. Uh, the Jewish problem consisted of the fact that um, Although by the uh, 19, late 19th century, Jews in Western Europe were completely assimilated. Um, that means that they spoke whatever language was in the country. They dressed the way the other people dressed. They worked in, in regular jobs and indeed were, were you know, strong uh, participants in the economy, in the universities, in the arts and culture of those countries. Despite all these facts, uh, that Jews were model citizens, there was still plenty of anti-Jewish feeling. And uh, Theodore Herzl was uh, an assimilated Jewish um, uh, newspaper reporter. Uh, and, and he said, well, you know what? The solution is we can't be better citizens than we are. We can't be more assimilated than we are. Uh, basically, the European people don't want us here. And so we should go to Palestine, which was our historical homeland from which we were uh, evicted uh, you know, by the Romans in, in, uh, shortly after the uh, first century. And uh, we should go back there and establish a new home. And he wrote a book called The Jewish State in German. And he, he proposed officially that Jews should go back and set up some sort of a homeland in what was then a Turkish-occupied, Ottoman-occupied uh, uh, Palestine. So that's what Zionism means. It means that Israel should be the homeland of the Jewish people. Whether uh, Jewish people should all go live there or not, that's their choice. But that Israel is the Jewish homeland. And, uh, you know, people who believe in that, whether they're Jews or not Jews, are called Zionists. And the word comes from Zion which is the name of the mountain in, uh, or hill, we'll call it, uh, in Jerusalem. So there's a Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And in Jewish texts uh, from time immemorial, the word Zion referred to um, that land, to, uh, you know, the land of Israel. So that's what a Zionist is. An anti-Semite is somebody who hates Jews, whether they live in Israel or don't live in Israel. Um, whether they are religious Jews or not religious Jews, um, whether they're assimilated or not assimilated. An anti-Semite is somebody who hates Jews, period. 
So um, uh, most often, uh, you know, anti-Zionists and anti-Semites are sort of uh, correlated. But, uh, you know, there's certain many, there's certain countries in the world like Iran who says, look, we are anti-Zionist. We don't believe that Israel should exist as a Jewish state, but we certainly are not anti-Jewish itself. We're not against the religion. We're not against the people. Um, and they make that very clear distinction. Um, for a while, I think in the Soviet Union, they were trying to make the same sort of distinction. Um, and uh, that's the answer. So, um, you know, uh, not all anti not all anti Zionists are anti Semites, and uh, I don't think that all anti Semites are anti Zionists. Um, there's a lot of people around the world who say we don't want Jews. You know, they should all go back. They should all go live in Israel and don't bother us uh, in our own countries here. Uh, you know, the white power people, the white the white supremacists in in the United States who just have these huge amounts of um, of uh, marches and things like that uh, with slogans, Jews will not replace us. They couldn't care less if Jews went to go live in Israel. They just don't want them around their neighborhoods. So uh, there is a distinction, but very, most often I would say, um, you know, the same people who are anti-Zionists are also anti-Semites. But it's not always the case, especially in the Arab world. And the Arab world has been a tradition um, uh, you know, up until the foundation of Israel, of Jews living more or less, more or less peacefully with their um, co-citizens, Muslim co-citizens. And uh, it's when Israel uh, became a state in 1948 that things deteriorated and uh, relations between the Muslims and their Jewish um, neighbors deteriorated. And... Um, you know, so uh, sort of anti-Semitism in those countries in a certain sense developed as a result of anti-Zionism. Uh, nowadays, as you all have heard, there are many Arab countries, including Morocco um, and Sudan, that have made peace with Israel. And the Jewish communities who are living in those countries, especially in Morocco, of course, are thrilled. And... Um, you know, many of them point out that they were proud to have Jews as their, uh, um, you know, citizens for a time. Morocco has done that. Uh, Libya, there's some talk about that. Uh, in Egypt, certainly there is a self-examination about the um, about the lives of the Jewish community in Egypt before 1948. There's some movies made. There was uh, the uh, Yacoubian brothers is one uh, talking about the... Um, you know, in, in a nice way, uh, how the Jews were living uh, in Egypt before, uh, you know, trouble started. Um, so, um, you know, it's a very quick description of the difference, but that's, that's clearly what the difference is. Anything, anybody else? I don't see any further questions, Archie. Okay, so... I, I will, I, you know, perhaps, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but I might come back to this topic next week. I know it's one of, I know it's one of big interest because, um, you know, of our listeners. Uh, and it's relevant because, as I said, the, uh, the elections are coming up in Israel uh, in March. 
But I, I wanted just to speak maybe just for a very brief time, for the rest of the time, about um, the coup in Myanmar the, uh, and about Burma itself as a country. Um, as you probably heard, uh, the government of Aung San Suu Kyi was overthrown uh, this week, the civilian government. Uh, she was arrested and uh, the military put its rule on that country. And it's a most interesting country. It's a country which I visited um, not that long ago. We spent, uh, let's say, almost um, maybe three weeks in Myanmar. So it was really quite a long time and quite a nice way to get to know the country. And we did this when it just, just, just opened up to uh, foreign visitors. So it was even more interesting because um, we wanted to go there before waves of foreigners would come. And uh, now, of course, uh, with whatever is going on now, there's no visiting at all. So uh, maybe we got lucky in, in, in that way. So first of all, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion about the names Myanmar and Burma, and they really refer to the same uh, thing, the same country. The British called it Burma. Um, in, uh, there was a, a, um, a kind of a pre, uh, while the British were still in power, there was a, a, a sort of um, uh, a movement for independence and they wanted to call the country Myanmar, uh, but they ended up continuing with the name Burma. And uh, just in the past uh, 2006, I think they changed it officially to Myanmar. But both, both names are acceptable. It's not like one is a bad one and one is a good one. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's the way it is. So um, Myanmar is the official name. And uh, it's sometimes easier to call it Burma because it's easier to pronounce. Um, but uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, it's a country whose population is 56 million. So we'll start by saying that it's a lot bigger than Canada in, in, in population. It's a poor country today. Uh, the, um, the standard of the, the gross domestic product at uh, comparable prices is around $5,000 a person. So they're, you know, eight times poorer roughly than Canadians are. Nominally, their per capita income is just $1,000 a year per person. So, uh, it, you know, it's definitely still a very poor country. Um, the um, history goes back to uh, ancient times, but we'll just start with uh, around the 1,000, uh, year 1,000, the Burmese people started arriving there in Burma and uh, brought with them uh, Buddhism. Uh, a variety of Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism. And uh, from 1,000 to around 1,200, they built these phenomenal temples. And I visited them, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small temples scattered all around the sort of uh, Irrawaddy River in central Burma in a place called Bagan, which was the seat of their kingdom. Uh, the Mongols invaded uh, that territory. It's amazing what these Mongols did because you know, they got into Russia and they got into Europe. And at the same time, they, were, they got all the way down as far as Burma. So it's an amazing sort of um, um, thing to explore on its own. Uh, the British got involved in Burma in the 1820s, having sort of spread from India. So um, the British were moving east from India 
and they uh, came into Burma in the 1820s. And by 1886, uh, they had captured the whole country and made it part of British East India. And uh, what they did was they imported lots of Indian people, native Indian people from India to help them administer uh, Burma. Uh, there was uh, sort of um, a, a tremendous amount of wealth that the British felt they could get out of Burma, which included uh, rubber, which included um, lumber, which included uh, rice and precious jewels. And um, they established Rangoon as the capital of Burma. And Rangoon in, in its day, in the 1920s, was a bigger immigration port than New York City. So more people were coming to live uh, in um, Rangoon at the time than were coming into New York City. So that's, that gives you an idea of how prosperous the place was. And uh, the city itself is amazingly full of these old Victorian buildings, which are all falling apart and, and rotting away in the uh, humidity. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, in its in its heyday, it was a tremendously prosperous place. Um, there were always anti-British feelings in uh, in uh, in Burma. Uh, in a certain sense, you know. There was anti-British feeling in India too, but it was not nearly as deep or was widespread as it was in Burma. And it was very, very strong. It's important to understand that Burma is a kind of a collection of different people and different ethnic groups. The main uh, ethnic group are called uh, Burmese or, or um, Bamars. And they are somewhere around 60% of the population or 65. But the other 35 are a scattered group of people who live all around, the, especially around the edges of the country. And they include, uh, uh, there's actually hundreds of groups um, and even hundreds of languages, but there are the main ones. Uh, Shan is the main one that you might've heard of. There are about 10% of the population, but there are also many other groups. And uh, the, these other groups never got along well with the majority Burmese population and, um, and uh, pretty well uh, have been fighting uh, almost nonstop against the Burmese uh, government, we'll call it, uh, since Burma was established. Um, the... Um, the uh, you know, not only did the Burmese resent the British for being colonialists, but the, Bur the British had this very kind of um, uh, master-slave, not master-slave, but, you know, uh, like top and bottom relationship with the Burmese. And uh, the Burmese are very religious people. 88% of them are Buddhists and, and religious Buddhists. And when the British were walking to their temples, they refused to take off their shoes. So this mark of disrespect was enough to turn uh, the Burmese uh, people against the British. And um, in, in uh, 1937, um, uh, Great Britain separated Burma from the rest of India and made it its own uh, separate colony. And this was uh, for logical reasons. In other words, uh, you know, the Burmese had nothing to do with the Indians. They were completely separate religion, completely separate people, separate language. 
and far far enough away from May, from the rest of India to make it impractical to administer Burma from India. And so they made Burma a separate colony in 1937. Um, there was already an independence party that was created at that time, led by a man named Aung San, who uh, was the father of Aung San Suu Kyi. So, uh, you know, this goes back, um, uh, you know, uh, quite a ways. Uh, in World War II, Japan, Japan invaded Burma and took over Burma. You probably know that there was tons of fighting going on in Burma. You had the Burma Road, uh, you know, the Burma jungle, the railways were trying to be built there. In general, the majority of Burmese population sided with the Japanese because they were so against the English. But the different minorities who were in Burma sided with the British. So it was the British and Americans who were fighting in Burma against the Japanese. Um, and uh, maybe a quarter of a million people were, were killed there. Burma was really a big theater for a second world war, not, not one that's all that well known. Um, after the war was over, 1948, uh, Burma became an independent country, just the way India and Pakistan did in 1947. Um, and uh, the British left. and. The British were so resented that, that, that the Burmese got rid of any kind of, um, uh, let's call it, you know, leftover traces of the British rule. So they refused to join the Commonwealth the way, you know, India and Pakistan did and the way many other um, former British colonies did. Um, the, uh, uh, one of their leaders became the Secretary General of the whole United Nations in 1961. Um, and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi won the Nobel Prize in 1991. But for most of the time, uh, starting in the 1960s, anyway, 1962, uh, well, for most of the time, the issue of how federalized should Burma be was, was the key issue of the country. In other words, should the different independent should the different sort of states with minorities have powers? Um, how closely centralized should the country be? Um, how much recognition should there be for all the minority groups in the country? Uh, you know, should, should Burma be a strong central government or should it be a kind of a weak uh, federation? Those are the questions that were, um, uh, you know, concerning the country for most of its life and including up till now. A military coup took place in 1962. Um, they, this military coup had very strong uh, socialistic uh, Russian uh, backing. Uh, they nationalized uh, the media, they nationalized business. Uh, they imposed a kind of a state socialism on the country. Uh, the minority population that was left in the country by then, there were 300,000 Indians and Chinese, they left. Uh, I know that Burma had a, a small Jewish population because we visited the synagogue there. And most of them left when the British left in, uh, in 1948. Uh, and they came there uh, along with the Indians to help uh, run the country, you know, um, in the heyday of the country, which would have been in the 19, uh, you know, 10s, 20s and 30s. There was a, a Jewish family that was still living there and we... we um, we met with them because they're the ones who run the synagogue, and that was kind of interesting. But we'll, we'll get to that uh, 
a bit later. Uh, so, uh, you know, Myanmar really went into a sort of a down slope to poverty under military rule. Um, and uh, in 1989, they changed the name to Myanmar, the country. Um, and in 1990, they held elections, uh, which uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the, the NLD party, won 80% of the seats. But they shared power uneasily with the military. So the military didn't want to give up power. The military, uh, through corruption, managed to take hold of uh, the you know, important levers of the economy. Um, they had a very kind of, uh, uh, we'll call it um, anti-foreigner feeling, uh, a very kind of paranoid feeling that the whole world was out to get them. And they moved the capital city from Rangoon, or Yangon as they renamed it, to Naypyidaw, uh, kind of a place in the middle of nowhere in the center of the country, just so that they wouldn't be close to foreigners or wouldn't be close to newspaper people or wouldn't be close to anybody who could be watching over what they're doing. Um, there was a, um, uh, yeah, so they moved the capital in 2006 to this place called Naypyidaw. And originally th there was almost no roads to get there. So uh, they really did want to kind of surround themselves and protect themselves because they were afraid of you know, demonstrations and coups uh, taking over them, which would be easier to, uh, to organize in, in, in Yangon, a huge city, than it would be out in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was an enormous cyclone called Nargis in 2008, which killed uh, almost a quarter of a million people, which is really amazing considering it's only a storm, but it shows how unprotected and undefended and unsophisticated their, um, uh, you know, natural uh, defenses were. And also, of course, it does show how climate change is something which, uh, uh, you know, can cause the deaths of many hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, the coastal area around Myanmar is very flat. Uh, it's an enormous rice growing uh, country. So agriculture is still the most important part of the country and rice is their main crop. Uh, they are one of the world's big rice exporters. Uh, when the British were running Myanmar, they exported rice. Um, uh, it was almost the, the, the uh, we'll call it the breadbasket of Asia, even though it wasn't bread, but um, you know they were producing rice to deliver to India in times of shortages in India. Um, one of the, uh, in 2011, the military junta dissolved itself and, uh, you know, tried to sort of pass on power to a sort of, we'll call it a, um, um, uh, what's the word, uh, civilianized, a civilianized military administration. So in other words, it would be like generals, but they were civilians, um, you know, masquer masquer generals masquerading as civilians who would then be running the country. Um, several important conflicts have occurred recently in um, Myanmar, and the most important one uh, is the issue of the Rohingya refugees. 
Now, these Rohingya people live in a, uh, only in one state in, in Myanmar called Rakhine State. And that's in the western, uh, northwestern part of Myanmar, bordering onto Bangladesh. Now, uh, like I said, uh, Myanmar is 88% Hindu. And so this Muslim population of Rohingyas was, you know, greatly looked down upon by their neighbors, uh, the Rakhine people. And these Rakhine people were always a very militarized and militaristic group on their own, never mind, you know, what the rest of Myanmar was. And uh, these two peoples lived very uneasily together. Uh, there were some civilian incidents between the two uh, groups of people leading to riots uh, of the Rakhine people against the Rohingyas. And these riots grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, the Rakhine people um, uh, in stages chased out more than 800,000 of, um, uh, of the Rohingya people. It's important to realize that um, Myanmar, Myanmar, the country, never recognized these Rohingyas as citizens. And uh, they actually have a citizenship program whereby they only recognize certain groups as being native um, Burmese, uh, including, of course, all of the Burmese population itself, which are, as I said, are 68%, and all the different smaller ethnic groups. Um, but the Rohingyas were never listed as one of those native ethnic groups. Uh, and then they said, well, um, if you could approve that you lived in Myanmar in 1948 with documentation, then we could give you citizenship. But obviously these people were uh, not able to do that. And so they were considered to be sort of illegal immigrants, we'll call them, coming from Bangladesh. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were murdered, raped, uh, their villages were burnt, and uh, many of them were chased back, were chased, I shouldn't say back, but were chased into Bangladesh by the uh, mob and their villages were burnt down so they wouldn't be able to come back. So we we're talking about refugees in, in Palestine and these uh, are Muslim refugees in uh, Bangladesh living there today in very uh, unsettled conditions. So that's one uh, of the, um, one of the conflicts. When Aung San Suu Kyi was the um, a spokesman for the Burmese government, and by the way, she could never be the actual leader of the government because she was married to a foreigner, foreign citizen, um, you know, but she said herself that these people, the Rohingyas, were not uh, citizens of uh, Myanmar, and therefore, um, you know, the government was not 100% responsible for their well-being even though, of course, she regretted any kind of violence and uh, any kind of uh, looting and all that kind of stuff. So that's one conflict. The second conflict has is to do with China. And uh, China is, uh, uh, you know, a very big, strong, wealthy country living, to, living next door to a very poor, uh, weak country. And uh, China's involvement with Myanmar is, is on several different levels. One level is that there is a group of native Chinese people living right on the Chinese border who are part of Burma and part of the Burmese society, um, but who always smuggled uh, goods back and forth between China 
and Myanmar because obviously they were living on the border. Stuff being smuggled, uh, you know, included um, um, uh, gems, uh, included drugs, included weapons, um, included uh, cigarettes, um, you know, anything that could be traded, uh, you know, back and forth between the two countries got smuggled in by these people. Now, China, as part of their Belt and Road Initiative, in other words, trying to expand Chinese uh, power in around the world, uh, has wanted to build a few different construction projects in Myanmar. The most, two most important ones are this huge series of hydroelectric dams, one of which would be just over the border with China. And all the electricity that would be produced from that would be shipped back to China. So, um, you know, that's uh, a clearly a kind of a sort of a imperialism uh, play. And another one was to build a railroad from China uh, all the way to, the, to a port in uh, Myanmar, which would be on the Indian Ocean. And that would be a really great help to China to ship goods um, in a very short distance from the interior south western interior of China all the way to the port is just a few hundred miles, whereas if they would have to go from the southwest interior of China all the way over to Shanghai or to Hong Kong would be, uh, you know, like in the thousands of miles. So this railway is supposed to be a kind of, um, you know, something to help Myanmar itself to open up the country, but to serve as a, um, you know, a, a tremendous strategic port for China uh, in, um, you know, to help their trade. So this is another one of the big, um, uh, big investments. But in general, the feeling in Myanmar is very anti-Chinese and uh, they don't, they need their help on the one hand, but they don't want to be dominated by them on the other hand. And um, uh, so this is part of an ongoing, uh, we'll call it the balance between the two elements. Um, the uh, the uh, Rohingya, when they were living in Myanmar, were uh, prohibited from owning land. Uh, they were they were encouraged not to have more than two children, uh, and they were called stateless Bengalis by the government. So they weren't even um, you know considered local people. And the Rohingyas also fought with the British in World War II, as I was mentioning before. Minorities did this. Um, and uh, lastly, uh, you know, the, the, the issues of religion, the, the Rohingyas being Muslim and the majority being uh, Buddhist uh, and the sort of the Muslim, you know, uh, we'll call it the Muslim uh, uh, terrorist activities elsewhere in the world, like with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, uh, certainly gave the people there a feeling that the Rohingyas might be uh, tempted to join this sort of, um, you know, uh, worldwide terroristic movement, and this gave an initial, uh, you know, uh, an additional push to, to, um, you know, uh, do something about the so-called Muslim problem in Myanmar. Now, in Yangon itself, there is a Muslim community which uh, had not been affected by these kind of. Um, these kind of anti-Rohingya feelings, because these people were not Rohingyas themselves, but were Muslim uh, Burmans 
um, you know, but, you know, it's hard to stop that feeling from spreading from one group of people to another. Um, now, let me just see what else I have to say about this. Uh, yeah, oil was discovered in Burma in the 1850s, and there was this company called Burma Oil. I don't know, Burma with an H at the end. Some of you who are sort of history buffs uh, may remember in, in England, they had a company called Burma Oil, and um, it started from that. Uh, the, the drug, uh, the drug um, smuggling, uh, the biggest drug is uh, methamphetamines, and there's smuggling that's going on both in Thailand and in uh, Myanmar, uh, huge amounts of these drugs made in China mostly, but also made in Thailand are getting smuggled to Myanmar and the population really are suffering from uh, drug, uh, drug use there. Um, uh, Myanmar is also known as the world's uh, center of rubies. So, um, you know, they're the biggest producer of the finest quality of rubies and it's mostly a, um, uh, an artisanal style of mining. So individuals go ahead and with picks and shovels and go ahead and they mine rubies, sapphires, and jades. Um, uh, but um, the, uh, because of uh, human rights uh, abuses, uh, um, Tiffany and Cartier are boycotting buying rubies from Myanmar. There's also uh, more than a million people from uh, Myanmar who are, have migrated to Thailand and are working um, you know, as migrant laborers, and many of them are really um, uh, working in sort of almost slave-like conditions. Um, there's been pictures of fishermen on Thai fishing ships where these migrant workers are working and they're not allowed to get off the ships and they're being beaten by their uh, employers and, you know, they're considered so worthless and so easily replaced that, um, you know, it's the poverty of Myanmar, which, uh, let's say, forces these people out and which puts them in a weaker position when they are migrants. And like all migrants, of course, they send money back home, which becomes important to the economy there. Uh, I just want to speak a little bit about tourism and um, about my trip there. Um, it was really quite amazing to to go into a country which at the time, and this was maybe only less, 10 years ago, we'll call it 10 years ago, uh, only 25% of the country had electricity. Uh, there was no uh, Wi-Fi. There was no interact banking. There was no bank machines. Uh, you had to go in there with very crisp um, American currency and it would be changed at a hotel and they wouldn't take it. They wouldn't take your money if it had even a fold in it. Um, it was remarkable to go out in the countryside and see, you know, houses without electricity, to see farm animals doing work like pulling wagons. Um, we saw small-style industries of making nails by hand and making sort of uh, uh, knives, forks, and spoons by hand, just taking a piece of metal and banging it out and cutting it out. Uh, you know, obviously this was maybe done for tourists, but it was something which had existed for a long time there. Um, we saw Bagan with all those temples that I was telling you about, which is definitely one of the world's most amazing sites. 
and you know you could take balloon rides up and just see see the 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 smoke rising from little fires that people have around their houses um we were in uh, yangon the capital and watching watching them loading a ship where uh the workers were carrying sacks of something and i think it was it might have been rice and they were carrying them by hand one by one over a plank onto the ship and each time the worker carried a sack he was given he, he, he had a stick and he gave a stick to the counter and the counter would then pay him by how many sticks was in his box. It was really, uh, you know, quite an amazing um, scene to see. Um, um, we were in Mandalay, which was, which was the second biggest city in Myanmar, uh, full of temples and mountains. Uh, we were at uh, a famous tourist resort called Inlay Lake where the hotels are located in the middle of a lake on floating platforms. And the tour guides would come and pick you up by boat and take you around the lake and show you uh, all kinds of, um, you know, uh, markets and, and things like that. It was truly an amazing um, place to visit, uh, extremely safe, of course. Uh, in those days, we flew from one place to another by plane. The airports had no LED signs whatsoever. Uh, there was no automatic baggage handling things. You carried your luggage uh, to a place where the plane was, you know, the inside of the airport. They gave you a sticker on your shirt to show what flight you were on. Um, when you got to the plane, the baggage handlers were loading the baggage on the plane by hand, by hand, no conveyor belts, just by hand. And, um, you know, that was, 10 years ago, and I think a lot has changed since then. So that's why, in a sense, we were lucky to go before everything, uh, you know, before everything uh, changed. Um, and as I said, uh, Yangon itself is a, is a collection of amazing sort of Victorian buildings falling apart, but which by now are being rehabilitated. So... Um, let me check my turn now. Yeah, we have, uh, I'm going to finish now. We have five minutes for questions, comments, and um, thank you so much for listening. Hershey, we just had one question come in. Yeah, go ahead. It says, do you want to tell us about the Jewish family there? Oh, uh, it so happens that um, the Jewish family who was there ran a tourist agency called Me and Marshalom. And uh, when we were looking for trips, we said, hey, look at this. And so we booked our trip through him, and um, he uh, then invited us to come to the synagogue on Friday night. Of course, a gorgeous synagogue. It's got pictures of Shimon Peres, who was there. Uh, the Jewish community there is down to, you know, maybe under 30, 40, 50 people. Uh, so they don't really have a solid community. But it was so interesting because the, the young, the daughter of this family, she spoke Burmese as her first language and, you know, uh, and her English was kind of accented. It was really kind of interesting. Um, and uh, it, it is a beautiful synagogue that the, all the neighbors respect the place and, you know, uh, keep it safe. That is, it's actually in the Muslim part of Yangon, of all things. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's definitely on, the, it could be on the UNESCO site because of its beauty. Um, and uh, like I said, it was uh, such a fascinating uh, experience to be there. 
And, um, you know, they were very proud to show us that they were still there and still, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the last Jew standing, we'll call it like that, in, in Yangon. So um, that was that. It was, it was a wonderful evening we spent with them. We have one more question, Hershey. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Is, is the army pro or anti-China? I didn't hear you, sorry. Is the army pro or anti-China? Is the army pro or anti-China? Mostly anti, um, because there's, there's a very strong feeling of nationalism in Myanmar, very strong. And they are against, um, you know, pretty well the whole outside world who they feel are trying to take advantage of them. Um, at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of sort of small-scale civil wars going on between different ethnic groups around the borders of Myanmar. And one of those borders is on China. And the feeling always is, is that the Chinese are backing the enemies of the state of Myanmar itself just to cause trouble and just to destabilize the country. And, and that's true, by the way. So um, there is anti, very strong anti-Chinese feeling, also because the Chinese, like all over uh, Southeast Asia, were sort of the businessmen and the, um, and the upper classes of the society there. And they, and, you know, they felt that these were like foreigners who were getting rich off of their, off of their work. And uh, like many places around Southeast Asia, including Indonesia, uh, when, when times got rough, uh, there were anti-Chinese riots and the Chinese were uh, traders and settlers were kicked out. And the same thing happened there in, in, in Myanmar. Well, thank you so much, Hershey. That's all so, the time we have for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Justin, for moderating. And uh, please come back next week and we'll start with something different. So have a good week. Uh, you know, don't slip and slide on the snow. And um, we'll see you all next week. Thanks again.